Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Hartford Police Chief David Rosado had been scheduled to appear today on Where We Live. His office uh, canceled on Wednesday, but we're trying to get him back on the calendar soon. We'll keep you posted. Meanwhile, we've planned an interesting show for you as we ponder the future of the automobile. Remember when Toyota Prius came onto the market? There was speculation the hybrid could would lead to the end of gasoline and diesel-fueled cars. Now, fast forward to 2018, and while some car makers have created some models for consumers, there aren't that many electric vehicles available. Will they ever be mainstream? Just ahead, we'll ask that question and more to the executive director of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. Also, how do you feel about driverless cars? Would you take a ride in one or maybe a driverless bus? Several cities in Connecticut are, have applied to a pilot program to prepare for this era. We'll hear more from a member of the state's autonomous vehicle task force. But first, do you take an Uber or Lyft on a regular basis? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email us where we live at WMPR.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. The ride-sharing companies have exploded worldwide, but there are consequences to their popularity, including congestion. For more, we're joined by Laura Bliss, staff writer at CityLab. She covers transportation infrastructure and the environment. She's joining us today from NPR's New York City studios. Laura, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Lucy. I understand, uh, I think it was last week, the New York City Council uh, put a cap on the number of Ubers and Lyft. Uh, Tell us about the, the reasoning behind that. That's right. Um, and that was actually signed into law by Mayor Bill de Blasio this week. So so it is officially in place. Um, so this is something that's been kind of uh, some, something that's been gr- growing. There's been growing momentum behind um, a cap of this kind. Right. So New York City Council has decided to put a one year moratorium basically on the number of new uh Uber, Lyft, and other ride-hailing services that can be, or or vehicles for these services that can be licensed. Um, So they're saying no more for this one year while we study what's going on on the roads. Um, Because one thing that's been really challenging about this industry is that we don't have a lot of data um, on how many vehicles are out there. Well, Well, we know that much in New York City, but we don't know a ton about how much they're adding to congestion, how much they're drawing folks off of public transit, um, and exactly where they're going. New York City has more data than other cities, but but there's still a lot of questions to ask. Um, and right now, New York City is grappling with, you know, higher and higher levels of congestion. It has carbon emission reduction goals, um, and it has a public transit system in crisis. So I think this cap, um, which is kind of half of what was proposed or, or actually is going to affect now, mm-hmm. um, is an attempt to kind of get uh, arms around the problem. Now, how much of this, uh, if at all, is related to how uh, the taxi uh, industry has felt about these ride-sharing companies, you know, taking business away um, from them? Uh, We hear uh, anecdotal stories about um, some taxi cab drivers that aren't able to make any money. 
That's right. So that's that's the kind of the other half of what went on in New York City um, with the ride hailing industry in the last couple of weeks. So there's this cap, um, and there's also um, part of this new law is the Taxi and Limousine Commission is going to figure out um, how to set actually a, a wage standard for. Uh, TL- TNC drivers, Uber and Lyft drivers. Um, and that is absolutely fueled by these pretty grim economic prospects faced by um, yellow cab drivers in part, right? So there's been, as we know, the kind of devastation of this um, industry by the introduction of ride-hailing services, right? Um, yellow cabs are highly regulated in New York City. There's this taxi medallion system that's been in place for a long time. And while you know owning a taxi medallion was once something of very high value, it's no longer um, now that you have this industry that's been so far pretty much unregulated coming in and, and kind of pouring new vehicles onto the road. So an attempt to put a cap um, on some of those new vehicles is a way to kind of um, even the playing field somewhat. Um, and also, right, a, a minimum wage for Uber and Lyft drivers, on the other hand, right, is, is, is also a good thing because, you know, while we hear a lot about how devastating this has been to yellow cab drivers, um, Uber and Lyft drivers are not <laughs> rolling in cash either, right? I mean, I think about there's a survey recently done that showed about 60 percent of, of drivers for these services make less than $50,000 annually and um, about a quarter make, make less than $30,000 annually. Um, and again, on the yellow cab side, I think this has been really driven home in New York City recently. There's been six suicides by yellow cab drivers in the last six months. Um, and all of those, the stories tied to these kind of dire um, economic situations that uh, these workers are facing. Uh, you mentioned uh, the the people who are driving the Uber and Lyft uh, um, cars uh, that people are hailing using these apps. But when we look at the caps, we can we can understand if Uber and Lyft aren't happy with um, the cap being placed in, in New York City. But can you talk more about um, how that cap, um, what who exactly that cap is hurting in terms of when we look at affordability, when we look at um, connectivity between different parts of the city, and even um, uh, how Lyft impacts communities of color. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I don't think we know yet how the cap is going to play out in all these terms, right? I think there's a lot that could happen. Certainly, Uber and Lyft are not fans of the cap, right? They would rather keep dro- grow- growing and, and continuing to grow the market, uh, increasing the number of vehicles on the roads. And and yeah, their argument is that, you know, with a cap, it's going to be harder to extend service to outer borough neighborhoods in New York City, um, which tend to be lower income communities, um, communities of color. And it's true, you know, there has been this sort of growing body of research that's, that's showing all kinds of things about Uber and Lyft and other services. And, and one of them on the plus side is that these services are reaching neighborhoods that were previously underserved by the yellow cab industry for a variety of reasons. <clears throat> So that's been a, a really great thing, I think, uh, in the sort of larger transportation picture. Um, now, does putting a cap on the number of vehicles, you know, that, that are already out there necessarily mean that has to happen? Um, I don't think we know that. That's certainly what the companies are saying. And, and you know, it's possible that that could be kind of a um, adverse political repercussion of this cap, right? Um, but... You know, it kind of remains to be seen how the Taxi Limousine Commission here in New York City is going to respond to this new law. There's still a lot of details to be figured out. And I think 
Um, the devil will kind of be in those details in terms of um, how the city works with these companies to make sure there's still equitable access. This is where we live. Joining us from NPR's studios in New York City is Laura Bliss, staff writer at City Lab. She covers transportation infrastructure and the environment. As we look at how uh, transportation is changing in our cities and towns, coming up, we're going to talk more about driverless cars and uh, whether uh, electric vehicles are going to become more and more mainstream. Those conversations coming up in the hour. Uh, Laura, I wanted to to ask you uh, because you cover transportation, what um, what does research say about um, Uber and Lyft and um, how much um, they are putting more cars on the road. When you think about people that are you know, sharing rides, uh, can you talk a little bit more about the time spent when there's uh, no passenger in the car? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> to just kind of keep the focus um, here in New York City, because that's where all this kind of action has been the last week or so. Um, and it is also where kind of the best data is, as I was saying, um, these city, uh, these these companies are pretty hard to regulate because they're fiercely proprietary, which, which makes sense, um, but it's hard to know in, in a lot of places just how many miles they're adding to the road. But here in New York City, um, there's one researcher in particular named Bruce Schaller um, who's been pretty... Uh, hard hard on the trail of of figuring out the impact. Um, And his latest study looks at um, total miles of ride-hailing services uh, over the last uh, five years, I guess. So so between 2013 and 2017, his latest numbers show that those services, Uber, Lyft, Via, Get, uh, a couple other, added almost a billion miles to the road in the city. So that's a lot. That's not just, you know, that's not that's not entirely new miles, right? Some of those trips, um, you know, might have come from, we know, probably did come from folks who would have otherwise taken a cab. Some of those miles might have come from folks who would have otherwise driven themselves, right? So those are kind of the same miles. We also know that about 50%, this is based on another city, about 50% based on the New York City Department of Transportation's surveys, um, of those rides are coming off of public transit, um, so that that means that's new miles on the road, right? If we if we if we can kind of rely on those numbers, right, which are which are still you know we we want we want more of them, which I think is part of the motivation behind this cap. Um, but if that's where the evidence is pointing, then we know that those are new miles on the road. And as you pointed out, um, deadheading, which is kind of the industry term, right, for taxis and um, for hire vehicles that are on the road without passengers in them, they're traveling between trips, right, or they're waiting for a new trip, um, is also a huge portion, right? So we're thinking about new miles on the road. Well, you know, that's great. There's there's more people getting around, and, and that's that's a good thing, right? We want to increase mobility. Um, but Schaller's research has actually found that about 50% of the new miles in New York City uh, were attributable to deadheading in that time. Mm. And for comparison's sake, it's about twenty percent in San Francisco. That's the, that's the, like the the best number we have. So, again, you know, <laughs> we need more data, um, but that what what data we do have is kind of pointing to uh, this kind of sense that we need to get our arms around the issue if we want to um, ease congestion. Uh, at the same time, Lyft has promised to be carbon neutral. Uh, they present themselves as the green choice. You've written that they could be doing more. Can you explain more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so part of the reason that um, 
Yeah, so just to back up a little bit, Lyft did pledge to make all of its rides carbon neutral uh, back in April. So all rides going forward, they're going to to um, essentially buy um, uh, carbon offsets right through various projects around the world, um, which is great, right? I mean, I think I think that's really laudable for for any company. Um, but I think it does kind of come back to that deadheading question, right? Um, those carbon offsets, right, are only going to be linked to the miles on the road that drivers are ferrying passengers in. And and that makes sense, right? I mean, Lyft doesn't really know necessarily mm-hmm. what drivers are doing all the time, you know, when they're not carrying passengers in their backseat. So they're not necessarily going to put the carbon offset um, towards those miles. Mm-hmm. But... If those miles make up like 50% of all, you know, the miles they're adding to the road and all those carbon emissions and all the idling and traffic, um, that's still a problem. Uh, coming up, as I mentioned, we're going to talk more about autonomous vehicles. Uh, we hear and we've read that a lot of these companies are planning on a future of driverless Ubers and Lyfts. So can you talk more in your uh, in your research, you know, how would a, a model of a city full of these self-driving Ubers um, change what we're seeing on the roads today? Yeah, um, it's a great and really fun question to think about. <laughs> and it's certainly true. Uber and Lyft both have teams of people devoted to this very question. I mean, Uber in particular has obviously been very visible in its testing um, of its autonomous vehicle technology. Um, they're definitely both planning on this, right? And and, and you can kind of see how ride hailing from the passenger side of things, right? You open your phone, you press a button, a car shows up, you get in the back seat. I mean, sometimes you're talking to the driver, sometimes you're not. It's kind of almost like it's already an autonomous vehicle. Um, so their business model, right, kind of lines up with this imagined future where that's that's it, right? Autonomous vehicles um, are what we're relying on, um, and you know, in Uber and Lyft's case, the, the the model is shared autonomous vehicles, right? That we're not necessarily all going to need to own our own, but that we can share them. Um, so there are some exciting and promising things about you know the the future of autonomous vehicles, or, or so we're kind of told by the industry largely. Um, you know, I think on the congestion and pollution front, right, I think that there is definitely a kind of consensus in the industry that these cars should be electric, you know, if we're, if we're pushing ahead in this direction. Um, there's also this idea that, you know, if the cars are programmable, they can kind of talk to each other, they can travel in fleets that could maybe reduce the um, amount of like stop and go traffic on the roads. So maybe that's a good thing. Uh, on the other hand, right, um, you know, this is still likely years and years and years into the future by the time, you know, there's like enough, this, the technology is good enough. But, um, you know, the biggest cost for any transportation service, right, is labor. And so if we kind of remove that from the question um, for services like Uber and Lyft, that means the rides could get even cheaper which is great for passengers, but that could also increase demand, right? That could mean we're going to want to take even more of these super convenient, super cheap trips. Um, and you can debate, you know, is it is that is it a bad thing that we're going to travel more potentially? You know, you, you might have different feelings about that, but that is pointing, you know, in the eyes of a lot of researchers to a likely outcome of, of yet more congestion. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Laura Bliss, Laura Bliss is with us today uh, from NPR Studios in New York City. She's staff writer at City Lab, covering transportation, infrastructure, and the environment. Now, driverless cars will become more common in the years ahead, and cities like Stanford, Connecticut, want to be prepared for that change. Coming up, we're going to hear about a state task force looking at the the future of um, autonomous vehicles. And you can join the conversation too. Do you look forward to the day vehicles have no drivers, solely relying on artificial intelligence to get you where you need to go? Or are you worried about the consequences, uh, like Laura mentioned, uh, possibly more congestion on our roadways? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about how technology is changing our relationship with vehicles and how we think about transportation in the future. With us from NPR studios in New York City is Laura Bliss. Again, she's a staff writer at City Lab covering transportation infrastructure and the environment. You can join our conversation, too, the number 860-275-7266. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, here in Connecticut, there's a group of state residents, lawmakers, and other officials studying the future of driverless cars here in our state. For more about the Autonomous Vehicle Task Force, Jackie Lightfield is joining me in studio. She's a member, again, of that task force and executive director of the Stamford Partnership. Jackie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. So um, some of our listeners might be surprised to hear there's an Autonomous Vehicle Task Force. Tell us about uh, when and why it was created. So the um, the impetus behind it was to try and um, position Connecticut uh, not as a um, a follower, but a leader in adopting uh, the best practices that are going on in some of the rapid changes uh, that are happening from uh, the autonomous vehicle t- uh, technology. And uh, we needed to be able to take a look at what laws need to change to allow these to happen, and certainly looking at some of the uh, incidents that have happened in other states as they've allowed things uh, like in the state of Arizona, where they basically said, yes, come here and do your stuff and we'll figure stuff out, um, to the more regulated environments like California, where they put limits or allowed specific types of vehicles to to be tested on the roads. So tell us more about the how Stanford specifically is looking to, you know, be, t- explain the pilot program and, and why Stanford's kind of trying to, to lead the way in sure. a sense. So Stanford has always been a leader in uh, technology and innovation for the for for the state, and uh, we've been working in uh, in conjunction with the state in creating an innovation district where we wanted to invite uh, high growth tech companies to uh, locate and test their products and services in Stanford. Autonomous vehicles being one of them, and uh, we put together a pilot in partnership with UConn and the Connecticut Department of Transportation to investigate uh, how we can test autonomous technology, whether it's vehicles themselves or the sensors that are used on the vehicles. Uh, Harman is headquartered in Stanford, and they do a lot of uh, technology as it relates to in-vehicle in uh, sensors and uh, deployment. And we wanted to basically uh, be one of the cities that you can test this technology that's different from some of the other sites. So uh, a lot of sites um, in in the West are flat and sunny all the time. We're a four-season location. 
we're a suburban city, so we're very car centric, but we're very proximate to New York City and, and in the in the northeast quarter between Boston and New York City, where um, we have access to the technology and talent uh, and the researchers that are doing this uh, work that they could test in our environment. So uh, you mentioned that the task force is fairly new. Um, talk a little bit more about, um, I guess, some of the regulations that you may be considering or how you would uh, try to um, think about the safety concerns. We can get a little bit more from uh, Laura about that Arizona example. Sure. I'm sure all of us have heard about different stories of, of these, uh, uh, you know, these autonomous vehicles having a, a backup driver and then things go wrong because of, of human error, uh, maybe not paying attention. But I'm curious how you're going to weigh regulation, safety, and and when you'll be putting forth these recommendations? Sure. Well, the, the task force um, basically is serving as a way to evaluate the existing regulations and laws as it pertains to allowing vehicles on Connecticut roads, you know, just regardless of whether they're um, autonomous or not. Uh, and then identifying uh, what other regulations are needed by taking a look at the other states and how they've implemented regulations and policies, uh, and also working with the industry to understand where the major car manufacturers are headed uh, in, in, in integrating some autonomous uh, te- technologies. And as I like to point out, every time you drive by a billboard and you see don't text and drive, that is actually an advertisement for autonomous vehicles since Drivers have basically decided that they would like to do something else instead of actually paying attention on the road. Um, There is a behavior model that is saying uh, this autonomous stuff is probably going to make the roads a little bit safer. Um, The task force itself is going to be looking at uh, that regulatory environment, but also the safety uh, issues as it's um, unrolling in other states. Uh, UConn is, is participating in the task force and has a automotive safety uh, program that is heavily involved in looking at those particular issues. So we'll be collecting a lot of data and working with um, our industry partners to develop kind of like a guideline for the legislators to review as they start thinking about policy changes within the state. Um, the other aspect of the task force is to take a look at which cities or towns within the state um, should be allowed to, to, to do a pilot. Um, and that's measuring against uh, what would be tested and what the outcome is hoping to achieve. In the case of Stanford, uh, we're known for our rather congested yes. area <laughs> around the transportation center uh, and I-95. And uh, we've been talking for many years about trying to solve that. Um, it's uh, our intent that we think we can solve it with some type of autonomous technology. And we want to experiment to see how that would actually play out. Are you uh, more of a proponent of uh, seeing autonomous uh, vehicles when we think about public transit versus uh, uh, we know that individuals like their privacy, they like their uh, to be independent, they like to go when they want to, and they may not want to share uh, that vehicle with others. So I mean, in terms of uh, looking at the future, does it make more sense to have that uh, ride sharing capability as part of the a- autonomous vehicle that is electric? Well, I think that the overall view Um, is kind of counterintuitive. I think autonomous technology gets us to more of a pedestrian-friendly area. It improves um, a lot of different issues that are affecting how we navigate within our our cities and towns. Um, The the biggest one is that, you know, in Connecticut, we've designed a system that hasn't really addressed the last mile. 
So we expect people to take their cars, drive to a train station, mm-hmm. hop on a train and get somewhere else, and then figure out how to get from the train station to their place of employment or the place that they're trying to visit. Um, and we've done um, – we haven't really done a lot of innovation in terms of addressing what other ways that we can do this. And so the autonomous technology is more than just the the, the idea of the driverless car. That's the sexy part. Everybody mm-hmm. understands what we talk about when, when we're talking about that. But it's really the logistics of traffic management, monitoring congestion, and kind of reducing the the issues of air quality around highly congested areas – and there's different ways of solving for those different cases. So in the idea of mass transit, yes, it makes a lot of sense to kind of you know, get a group of people to a, a similar destination or the same destination as efficiently as possible. But whether they want to do that or not is going to be the big question. So I think in how we've designed our pilot in Stanford was to basically approach it with, we think this is going to happen if we do this and let's see if people react to it or does the logistics and, and software actually work to make that happen? This is where we live. Uh, you're hearing Jackie Lightfield. She's executive director of the Stanford Partnership, uh, one of the cities that's part of a, a pilot looking at uh, the future of uh, driverless cars and changing uh, our transportation infrastructure. Also a member of Connecticut's Autonomous Vehicle Task Force. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Michael's calling from Meriden. Michael, go ahead with your question. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Um, I have a question about uh, how autonomous vehicles are going to affect the insurance industry. Um, Tesla, is, I know, is working on autonomous uh, 18-wheeler trucks for um, shipping uh, needs and, I, and freight and whatnot, and I want to know how that's going to affect the insurance industry. Good question, Michael. Uh, this, again, probably one of the questions the task force is thinking about. Oh, yes, there's lots of indus- uh, industry um interest in it. And I think that the answer kind of lies on a national scale. The insurance industry um, is working very closely with vehicle manufacturers because they certainly understand that the liability issues extend to the components of the vehicles. So before we even get into the how do we deal with an insurance of a vehicle that is driverless, um, the research that's being done at the industry level between car manufacturers or vehicle manufacturers and the insurance industry itself um, are working through those issues more at a component level. Um, and we see that kind of in how the uh, transportation network companies like Uber and Lyft are dealing with insurance issues where people are using personal vehicles for commercial purposes that they may or may not be employees of these uh, companies. And I think on a state level, there are various um, challenges to whether the company's position that they're not employees versus the uh, state saying, yes, they are because they are working for you, um, is going to get litigated out and and resolved. And I think by the time that we see a personal and uh, passenger car that is driverless, those issues will, will have been resolved. Uh, I want to bring back into the conversation Laura Bliss, staff writer at City Lab, who covers transportation infrastructure and the environment. Laura, could you talk a little bit about um, how different states are um, moving forward uh, with certain uh, task forces like Connecticut, um, examining these questions and trying to um, spur on innovation uh, where uh, they live? 
Yeah, certainly. Um, Connecticut is definitely not the only state uh, convening these kinds of tasks for task forces. Rather, um, I think most major cities um, are looking at ways to start piloting um, these technologies, uh, and and certainly the most populous states are also looking at how uh, to pass uh, traffic safety laws around them and and um, state level regulations. Um, I think that you know there has been somewhat of a um, hush uh, over the AV industry on the industry side um, in the last six months or so. I think um, in the uh, wake of a uh, fatal crash that occurred in Arizona um, with a Uber self-driving vehicle where the driver struck and killed a pedestrian. Um, and I think on the kind of state regulation side, right, that incident really did uh, drive home this um, idea that there is a need for greater scrutiny um, and and probably rulemaking. Um, Arizona was a state that had really cultivated a kind of lawless environment um, for AV testing. And and that that was, you know, a kind of economic, you know, boon for them. It became this kind of AV industry hotbed uh, with lots of testing occurring there. Um, but I think we saw kind of the effect of that. So I think I think you you do see a, some some states um, kind of uh, taking a little bit more of a backseat um, in you know following something like that, and and I think the companies too taking a little bit closer look at at um, their testing practices. Now, Laura, I think uh, you or one of your colleagues at at City Lab uh, wrote a little further about um, after that uh, fatal crash in Arizona about um, some of the challenges with uh, making sure that these autonomous vehicles are safe when they become uh, more common. And uh, there's been an examination of what was called the handoff problem that was seen in the aviation industry when you when you uh, factor in uh, human error. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, right. So that, that was my story looking at um, talking with a number of um, former and current backup drivers. Right. So these are the folks who are sitting in the, you know, drivers and passenger seats um, of, you know, Uber and Waymo, which is the Google self-driving car project, um, and several other uh, companies. And, and and with the um, Uber testing program, and, and this is changing, actually, they just started testing cars again in, in Pittsburgh very recently after, after that crash. Um, but previously, um, there had been a, about a six-month period where um, they were only testing with one person. Just one person behind the wheel, kind of responsible for these very long shifts, um, letting the car kind of operate themselves, and yet, you know, this, this human being sort of expected to keep their hands hovering above the wheel and and kind of ready to intervene at any time, because of course this is this is still you know pilot technology; it's not it's not fully there yet. Um, and what kind of happens in that situation is exactly as you said, Lucy, the handoff problem. Um, when you have a technology that's working pretty well most of the time, it's it's human nature. Studies show it's human nature to get kind of lulled into a state of complacency um, and even boredom, right? If you're the only person in the car and you're not allowed to listen to music or look at your phone, obviously. Um, and so we we do seem to we, – we, we, we know that that was a factor, um, in the crash in March, although investigations are still ongoing, we know that this driver was was actually looking at a a, a device um, in her lap while she was supposed to be looking at the road. 
You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, Laura Bliss is with us, and Jackie Lightfield, a member of Connecticut's Autonomous Vehicle Task Force. Uh, Jackie, I wanted to uh, read a comment we got from a listener in Guilford, uh, uh, Eric, uh, who either called in or sent this to us. He said, from a tech standpoint, from someone who has worked in autonomy and is an engineer, we are many, many decades off from having level five autonomy. It's a pipe dream that's really far off. Can you respond to that? And then when we think about the cars on the roads today, um, again, like when we think about what's in the future and then how um, we have a task force like the one you're on uh, planning about, like, how do we uh, navigate this? So first of all, he's absolutely right. Uh, Level five is a fully autonomous vehicle where a human um, does not have to intervene for any condition whatsoever. And from a technology standpoint, from the ability of our sensors and the and the processing of the sensors, whether they're on vehicle or up in the cloud, um, we're still a long ways away um, on that. Um, however, it, we are currently driving with autonomous tech. We just don't talk about it. Um, when we use Waze or whatever mapping device where we say, I want to go to WNPR today from Stanford to, to Hartford, and uh, it goes ahead and maps out the shortest route and tells you what exit to get off of. That is the autonomous tech that we're currently using, that nobody's regulating, that data is being collected, that the big uh, tech companies are using, are using that to model out uh, traffic scenarios, road conditions, and, and so on. And I think that's an important issue that um, while we focus on you know, kind of like the Jetsons view where you just hop into something and it drives you off to where you want to go because it knows where you want to go. What we really need to be focusing on are kind of like the nuts and bolts of where the technology is currently and how it's going to be implemented and at the pace it's going to be implemented. Because certainly 10 years ago, if we were talking about our driverless future, we would not have been talking about the fact that we would be all driving with these devices that would know more about our traffic conditions than the traffic engineers and traffic planners for all the municipalities and and all of the DOTs um, are able to, to monitor. Um, there's a huge difference in the quality and quantity of data between a traffic camera that's overlooking I-95 and the real-time traffic information of 30,000 people traveling between two exits um, that Google and others uh, currently are processing. David's calling from Hartford. David, go ahead with your question or comment. Hi, I'm calling to ask or suggest that the Connecticut Task Force be involved with the drafting committee that the Uniform Law Commission has uh, going on drafting a uniform law on autonomous vehicles. The notion is to have a law that addresses many of these issues uh, that's similar or the same across all state lines. Folks involved in that process are representatives from each state uh, who are uniform law commissioners, but also advisors are people like you, the insurance companies, the police departments, uh, the technology industry, the vehicle uh, industry, and consumers. So it seems to me that Connecticut ought to have its oar in the water as this drafting committee is doing its work uh, creating a, a uniform law. It should have its work done probably not – it'll probably take at least two years to finish its work. Um, but I'm encouraging that Connecticut have somebody there at the table, either by telephone or in person when they have their drafting committee meetings. All right, David, thank you for your comment. Jackie, did you want to respond? Sure. I'm not that familiar with what the Uniform Law Committee is is investigating. I do know from an industry standpoint that the automotive industry and the tech companies are looking for uniform um, laws and regulations as it applies to the vehicles themselves. From an insurance standpoint, 
Um, first, our task force has many uh, lawyers representing various aspects of the insurance industry and insur- insurance industry um, uh, representatives as well. Um, but it, my understanding of the insurance end of it is that every state has its own regulatory environment and its own uh, issues. And a lot of the conversation about how do one state's insurance regulations apply to another state's have sort of been litigated or, or, or discussed or, or figured out um, when it comes to the uh, transportation network companies who are crossing state lines under different regulatory frameworks. Um, and one of the tasks of the task force is a subcommittee that is specifically going to look at what are the analogous situations that we currently know about that have nothing to do with whether it's autonomous or not and will they apply in the case that it, it is uh, autonomous technology driving things. And I think the best example for that is is the data that is collected on the vehicle currently with human drivers who has access to it. How is it used in uh, an accident report? How is it used from an insurance standpoint? Who owns the data at the end of the day and who has access to it and how is it stored? And I think those are very important issues regardless of whether we're talking about autonomous vehicles or not. Uh, Randall on Twitter uh, writes, I don't think any of the advantages of autonomous services like cars outweigh the negative impact of potentially millions of people who can no longer find work. Laura Bliss, if I can go back to you, I know when we've done past automation shows, this question always comes up. Can we talk a little bit more about the impact on on labor and uh, as we look to the future, how that will impact the types of jobs available? Yeah, absolutely. And and before I respond to that, I I would just like to add um, to the last question about, you know, state patchwork, like a patchwork of state laws um, on the insurance side of things and data collection side of things, the same kind of debate is being played out on the city level, right? So the AV industry is is lobbying pretty much every major state legislator, legislature, excuse me, um, to pass laws that, that basically preempt uh, localities from passing their own regulations um, around autonomous vehicles. And I think going back to the Uber cap, right, I think that's a really good example of why actually you do want some local control over um, transportation uh, regulations to, to some extent. Um, and so so I just like to point that out too. Um, you know, the industry sort of saying we don't want a patchwork. On the other hand, cities are like, you know, we're going to need to get our arms around, you know, safety and, and, and traffic issues that are ultimately quite local. Um, so there's that. Yeah, on the labor side, I think, uh, I think, you know, automation and and labor, <laughs> it's it's this sort of, um, you know, uh, there's there are problems related to automation taking over, you know, jobs in, in virtually every sector um, of our economy, right? And, and transportation is absolutely one of them um, as it is. Uh, and I think I think we do see a kind of coming, um, you know, more writing on the wall for, you know, taxi drivers and um, truck drivers, obviously, um, pretty much across the different transportation sectors. Um, I can say that in public transportation, you know, that is sort of an area where I think most people are saying we're going to need people in the car uh, or in the vehicle, rather, um, kind of managing the very um, human, you know, issues um, that come up when you're you're navigating a vehicle full of people. Um, and I think like on the on the you know ride hailing side of things, we don't really know yet, right? Like what what happens when you have just a 
bunch of people in a car um, with no kind of mediating presence, right, um, that the driver sort of provides currently. So, so I don't think we, t- we totally know. But I think there is, there's definitely a reason for, for concern among people who are currently employed in that sector. Laura Bliss, again, staff writer at CityLab. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. And Jackie Lightfield, Executive Director of the Stanford Partnership, member of Connecticut's Autonomous Vehicle Task Force. Jackie, we hope to have you come back to talk more about the work the task force is doing. Sure, I'd love to. Thank you. Uh, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, it's safe to say self-driving cars won't make up a majority of vehicles on the road anytime soon. But what's the latest on electric vehicles and the intended goal of reducing emissions and our over-reliance on fossil fuels? Coming up, we're going to talk more with the executive director of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. Do you drive an electric vehicle or want to? Is the sticker price preventing you from buying one? Join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Will electric vehicles ever become mainstream? Uh, For more on that, and we want to welcome to our show Sam Ori, Executive Director of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. He's joining us by phone. Sam, welcome to where we live. Thanks for having me. When we think about electric vehicles, uh, we think about Tesla, for one. Um, it's, it's very niche. Um, but when I ask the question about electric vehicles becoming more mainstream, are we seeing that happening in other countries? We definitely are seeing it happen uh, or begin to happen, I should say, in other countries. I think, uh, you know, oftentimes when we talk about the electric vehicle market, uh, people get a little too focused, I think, on just the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in fact, I think some of the most interesting developments in the EV market are really in China. Uh, if you look over the first half of this year, for example, at the largest manufacturers of electric vehicles globally, uh, you know, Tesla is up there. It's number two. Uh, but BYD and BAIC, both Chinese companies, are uh, are, are uh, in the top three as well, BYD being the largest uh, manufacturer in the world for the first half of this year. Um, you know, so that, just to put those numbers in a little bit of perspective, uh, you know, so BYD in the first half of this year produced a little more than 70,000 uh, electric vehicles uh, for sale in China. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a real business. It's, a, it's, a, it's growing. But at the same time, you know, uh, China is also experiencing a huge boom in, in sales of gasoline-powered SUVs. Uh, just last year, for example, uh, the Chinese SUV market, you know, got to be about as big as the U.S. SUV market. And that's about, you know, 10 million uh, around that uh, order of magnitude uh, per year. So, you know, the EV industry is growing, but, you know, if you put it in a little bit of perspective and compare it to some of the other technologies that are on the road, it's still, you know, it's still got a lot of ways to go. It's, you know, these these vehicles are somewhere between 1% and 5% of the market in most places. When we talk about expansion, what's driving that? Um, when we think about uh, Tesla, obviously those are expensive cars. I'm wondering if battery costs are going down. Uh, what's making people turn to these vehicles more? Certainly, battery costs are coming down uh, since you mentioned it. Um, you know, in the when the industry was really starting to you know get going in the 2008-2009 time period, uh, the batteries that power most of these vehicles today, lithium-ion batteries, uh, were you know the price was in the range of a thousand dollars a kilowatt hour uh, or more. And you know, most estimates of those costs are now that they're you know they're much closer to two fifty or three hundred dollars a kilowatt hour. So uh, the costs have come down quite a bit. Uh, but, you know, I don't think that in most markets, certainly not in the United States, uh, you're, generally speaking, people are not buying these vehicles uh, yet today based on the economics. They're not buying them because they, they want to save money. Uh, 
or because they're going to save money. I think for the most part, in the U.S. anyway, the, the real driver is you know, the, the technology. Uh, Tesla is an expensive car, but it's a very cool technology. And if you look at, um, if you look at the, the, the segments of the market you know, where Tesla is competing, it's in the luxury end. And that was a very purposeful strategy by Tesla to be able to uh, sell into the luxury end where people were less cost sensitive and be able to you know, learn a lot about their technology and drive down costs uh, over time. If you look at Europe and China, you know the economics are are better. The fuel prices are obviously higher, um, and uh, and so you know I think most estimates that I've seen suggest that by the middle of the you know 2020s uh, or early 2020s in Europe and in China that you know you'll be able to buy an electric vehicle uh, for a comparable price as a gasoline powered vehicle. When we look at uh, traditional gasoline uh, vehicles, people still see them as a, a better financial deal, especially with the gas prices where they are now. Um, you know, you can look at gas prices, uh, but, it, you know, just the technology costs are still high enough that, uh, that it would take you, you know, it would take you more than uh, a reasonable time period to pay that down in the United States anyway. Uh, if you're looking in other markets where fuel prices are higher, um, you know, that's a slightly different calculation. But in the U.S., you know, we can look at gas prices now in the, with oil prices in the $70 a barrel range. And sure, they're higher than they were uh, a couple of years ago, but they're still not by any means, um, you know, high enough that it would make the economics of an electric vehicle uh, a slam dunk at this point. And we also look at uh, the geography of the United States in terms of uh, on the western side, too, when people are uh, buying and using electric vehicles, you know, concerns about where they charge uh, these uh, these cars. Does that play a part in, in people's decisions? Yeah, I think, you know, that's one of what I would just put into a, a bucket of kind of like, you know, cons- consumer issues, mm-hmm. consumer uh, user interface type issues. And uh, it's a new technology, and there is, I think, some apprehension about, well, you know, I want to get one of these cars. Where am I going to charge it? Um, and, you know, I think the, the good news is that uh, as an electric vehicle driver myself, uh, you know, I, I, can, uh, I can, you know, uh, support a lot of the research that's out there that suggests that, you know, public charging is actually probably not that important. Uh, if you're buying a vehicle that's, that's the right vehicle for you, uh, charging at home uh, and at the workplace is, is really, uh, is really accounts for the overwhelming majority of most people's charging needs. Um, and so, you know, I do think we're, we're, we as, as consumers, as drivers, are used to this model where, you know, the, the refueling happens in public and, you know, you go to the gas station uh, at some point during your busy day and, and, uh, and, and that's how you handle refueling your vehicle. But, um, you know, the, the, the logistics of refueling an electric vehicle are actually simpler in the sense that, you know, you just come home and plug in if you can. Now, that obviously requires a few things. One is it requires uh, a dedicated parking spot, which, you know, it's the, you know, a lot of Americans have. More than half of Americans have access to a dedicated parking spot or half of drivers. Um, but, you know, that still leaves a gap in the market. Uh, it also requires you to have, you know, the right kind of wiring where you're parking. So, uh, you know, these are these are parts of the, of the I think, the the adoption process of these vehicles that people are getting, uh, that the, the market is having to get used to a whole new paradigm of refueling. Um, and I think that uh, it does provide or it does, it does create a little apprehension for adoption. I'm curious when we when we hear of the Trump administration and their proposal to roll back uh, regulation on vehicle fuel efficiency, how will that play into uh, whether we see an expansion with electric vehicles or not? Well, I think that, you know, it could have uh, it could have some impact in the United States. the The rules themselves 
you know, have in there a variety of incentives for electric vehicles. Uh, the, the good news is that um, a lot of those incentives uh, were in, written into the rules for the period from 2017 uh, through 2021. And so, you know, under the rules that are in place right now, electric vehicles are treated as zero emissions vehicles. So in other words, uh, the emissions that come out of the tailpipe are are the only ones that are counted, not any of the emissions that come from the power plant that's generating the electricity for the vehicle. So the vehicle itself is treated as a zero emissions vehicle, and the automakers get uh, bonus credits for selling the vehicle. So uh, in 2017, for example, uh, you know, Nissan selling a Leaf counts as uh, zero emissions against their credit uh, or against their cap, um, and it counts as two vehicles. And so what that allows them to do uh, is to, you know, sell heavier vehicles and have this large offset from, from electric vehicles. It, it, uh, it's, I think, for some automakers, particularly, you know, automakers that have large SUV and truck components of their, of their fleet, EVs were uh, and probably are right now an attractive part of their compliance strategy, um, you know, allowing them to sell more trucks that don't meet the standards by offsetting that, that, um, that, that uh, under compliance with over compliance from their, from their light vehicles fleet and, and, and from electric vehicles in particular. Now, th- th- those credits, those bonus credits, uh, were always going to go away uh, after the 2021 model year. Um, what was expected to stay in place was uh, some treatment of electric vehicles as zero emissions vehicles. Uh, and I think, you know, to the extent that that goes away, you know, that will have some impact on, on uh, EV adoption or, you know, electric vehicle manufacturing in the United States. Sam, we're almost out of time. I just wanted to throw in there. I mean, we don't, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time. But um, in terms of when we look at electric vehicles, are they really better for the environment? And because they're when you have to plug them in, you still have to rely on fossil fuels. Yeah. Let me just one last point on the on the rules. The bigger issue is going to be uh, California has these zero emissions vehicle mandates, uh, which are applicable in California and in, in, in several other states around the country. The Trump administration is going after those. If those go away, it will have a much bigger impact uh, in the U.S. Uh, in terms of whether the vehicles are better for the environment, you know, obviously it all depends on uh, the power plant that's producing the electricity. The good news is that in the United States, uh, in, in, uh, in almost every state uh, of the union, and there was a good analysis um, from the Union of Concerned Scientists uh, a few months back that showed that uh, electric vehicles today on, on almost every state grid uh, in, the, in the United States is better than uh, driving a gasoline-powered vehicle. Sam Ori again, is executive director of the Energy Policy Institute and the Becker Friedman Institute at the University of Chicago. We packed in a lot in just a little bit. I'd love to have you back sometime, Sam. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to technical producer Kion Wolf and Lydia Brown. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have a great weekend.